This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 379, Rommel Strikes Back. In order to start Operation Pedestal, the North African theater has to be brought up to speed, and when we last left the area, back on episode 177, Operation Crusader had just ended on December 30th, 1941. A few months prior to this, in mid-June, the British-led forces tried to relieve Tobruk, with Operation Battleaxe, but that had gone badly, and C&C Middle East General Archibald Wavell was out to be replaced by General Claude Auchinleck, and Crusader was his attack to relieve Tobruk. The Western Desert Force, now designated 8th Army, was put under the command of Lieutenant General Sir Alan Cunningham, and Auchinleck wanted him to sneak some of his tanks past the Axis defenders, hit them from the rear, while helping his trapped comrades along the coast. Crusader commenced on November 18, 1941. But between scattering his tanks and Rommel's outside-the-box thinking, along with the Germans' dwindling supplies, the Axis forces avoided a slaughter, inflicted their own impressive casualties, and moved back to El Aguila, at the bottom left corner of the Cyrenaican bulge. Technically, this was an Allied victory, but it could have been so much more. In times past, Rommel's own aggressive nature set him up for committing too much, thus allowing the Commonwealth troops to get in behind his forces. Well, no more. This time Rommel, despite his staff's advice, pulled back and saved himself and his command. But Crusader did have a big-name victim, that being General Alan Cunningham, 8th Army commander. 
Only recently has information become public that Auchinleck, being the sensitive and careful man that he was, privately asked Cunningham to check into a hospital in Alexandria, saying he had a nervous breakdown, versus having to relieve him of command. Now, that diagnosis would be going too far, but indeed, near the end of December, Cunningham was out of his depth and unable to see the battlefield clearly, and he felt the strain keenly. But Auchinleck would find that he did need time to lick his wounds. Though the Allies lost fewer men than the Axis, Auchinleck now found himself having lost many more tanks than the Desert Fox. Again, a victory that the British could not afford to repeat too many times. The question was, would Rommel let the Allies rest? The answer was no, of course, which should have come as no surprise to Auchinleck. But it did, as his intelligence staff told him that Rommel had lost two-thirds of his force during Crusader, which may have been true, but the Desert Fox knew that audacity could take him far, especially if the other side was unprepared. And Rommel had not wasted any time in getting resupplied from Tripoli and bringing up more fuel, the lifeblood of an army in the desert. The reassertion of Axis dominance in the Mediterranean made this possible. Ironically, it was Auchinleck who thought he would be the one surprising the Axis forces with his surprise drive on Tripoli that he was planning. But Rommel received intelligence from an intercepted American signal in Cairo that spoke of the relatively weak RAF in North Africa, the pounding that Malta was taking. Hence, its planes and subs would be unlikely to intercept supply ships coming from Italy, and most importantly, the 8th Army's now longer supply lines and resulting issues. That was enough for Rommel. He would launch his own attack on January 21st, 1942. The build-up, such as it was, 55 new tanks, for this attack was masked by bad weather, a lack of communication, but that should read, Rommel purposefully did not inform his superiors in Italy, and again, British confidence that Axis forces in the desert were in shambles. Not even close. The next battle for North Africa would soon be underway. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Auchinleck was hoping, and London was praying, that this attack would be another Operation Compass, when General O'Connor had pushed the enemy back hundreds of miles. But that had been a year ago, 
and there had been many changes since. The biggest one being the entry of the United States into the war after Pearl Harbor. This prompted Churchill to cross the Atlantic in the King George V-class battleship, Duke of York, with his military advisors, and meet with the Americans during the Arcadia Conference. The Prime Minister stressed two things. First, with the Americans now in the war, yes, they were still gearing up, but nevertheless, their entry would allow the Allies to go from the defensive to the offensive. This pleased the aggressive, if naive, Americans. Next, this new offensive spirit should find form in North Africa, for many reasons. The British chiefs of staff were not exactly happy with this idea. They pointed out all the practical limitations currently in the way, and many Americans were not happy with this either. After all, it had been Japan that had attacked U.S. forces, and they wanted to focus in that direction. But at the end of the day, FDR agreed with Churchill. He wanted American boys in the fight ASAP and felt it wise to test themselves against access outposts in North Africa before trying something more closer to mainland Europe. During Arcadia, there was talk of a combined Anglo-American force landing in Morocco or thereabouts, but Rommel's coming attack would negate that. Simply at the moment, the Allies were too weak and the Axis in North Africa were too strong. If the Malta series so far has proved anything, it's that the island, with its location, was central to impeding Axis shipments bound for Tripoli. As Kesselring's 2nd German Air Force had returned from Russia and German subs were brought into the Mediterranean, the results quickly favored the Axis. On November 14, 1941, the carrier HMS Ark Royal was sunk by the submarine U-81. Within two weeks after that, U-331 sunk the battleship HMS Barnum. And we have already seen the brave Italian frogmen who entered the harbor at Alexandria and damaged the battleships Queen Elizabeth and Valiant. Normally, their replacements would have been on the way, and indeed they were on the way, on their way to the Pacific to deal with the Japanese who were now in the war. These losses, combined with the renewed German air menace, meant that getting supplies to Malta was even more risky while the Axis found that getting supplies to Rommel had become easier. On January 5, 1942, Rommel received a large Axis convoy, holding 55 new tanks and a large amount of fuel. This was all Rommel needed to hear. He confirmed with his staff on January 12 that at the moment he had the tactical advantage. The Desert Fox was about to come out of his den again. As the British-led forces had won last time, barely, they now had the responsibility of covering the Cyrenaican bulge, which meant spreading out their forces, and Rommel would use their dispositions to his advantage. Rommel's most eastern position was at El Aguila, but about 20 miles away from this, to the northeast, was Auchinleck's closest unit, at Mersa Brega. There sat the 200th Guards Brigade, so-called, to avoid confusion. In reality, it was the renumbered 22nd Guards Brigade. Either way, these men, the ones that survived this upcoming battle, would be forced to surrender in June of 42, when Rommel finally takes Tobruk. 
but this truly was only a screening force. Besides the understrength guards brigade, there was the support group of the 1st Armored Division. Oh, and this support group had recently arrived, and they were still figuring out how to live with and not fight against the desert. From there, more numerous and better armed units were scattered throughout the bulge. But to give an idea of what Rama would first be dealing with, 20 miles behind the screening force was another undersized unit at Agidabia, and then a stronger force at Atilat, and to the east of Atilat along the coast at Betafam. From there, more units were in various towns, like the 4th Indian Division at Benghazi, and others all the way back to Tobruk. Like the last time Rommel came roaring this way, the Commonwealth troops were scattered, understaffed, undertrained, under-equipped, and hoping the enemy was in no shape to go on the offensive. Despite the British forces lacking so much, Auchinleck was determined to attack again, if only because Churchill was pushing him to. Hence, London was told that on or about February 15th, the 8th Army would commence with Operation Acrobat, the taking of all of North Africa. It would be commanded by Major General Neil M. Ritchie, the current Deputy Chief of the General Staff in Cairo. Auchinleck picked Ritchie to replace Cunningham over the Generals Charles Norrie, who commanded the 30th Corps, and Reed Godwin Austin of the 13th Corps, because Ritchie had experienced the good opinion of other senior officers, and he was connected. Yes, that does matter in war, when a general can ring up a friend high in the government and ask his chum for more supplies, or men. Also, Norrie and Godwin Austin were corps commanders. It made no sense to Auchinleck to remove one of these leaders right before they jumped up and charged forward. No, Ritchie would get his chance, but Auchinleck let Ritchie know, I'll be around if you should need me. However, Auchinleck had, as a part of his attack plan, a retreat plan baked in, should this not work. The first fallback position, should this attack go pear-shaped, was at the Halfaya Pass near Solom, just inside Egyptian territory. As this was east of Tobruk, those men would once again be on their own. If the Halfaya Pass was breached, the next stopgap point was at Mursa Matru, about 75 miles east of Solom. If that fell, then the third and final defensive line would be at El Alamein, only 106 kilometers or 66 miles west of Alexandria. That could not fall or the entire Allied position in North Africa and the Middle East would be compromised. Getting ready to launch his attack that would take him to Tripoli, Auchinleck was in Cairo when Rommel, only looking to raid Sinaitica to keep the enemy unbalanced, let loose his forces on January 21st, three weeks before Acrobat was to launch. As there were still Axis forces trapped and fighting in the bulge, Rommel was hoping to hit the enemy, take whatever he could, and perhaps rescue some of his men. But either way, the Allies were to be bloodied. The attack would start out with three Axis columns. Major General Ludwig Cruvel's Africa Corps was to head out, 
push past the first few defensive positions they encountered, but then head along the road that went to Imsus, basically in a northeasterly direction, as this would split the bulge and confuse the British. Where was the Africa Corps going? Was it looking to entrap enemy forces behind it in the bulge, or were they heading for Tobruk? As the Africa Corps would be on the right flank, in the center of this narrow front would be General Gambera's 20th Italian Mobile Corps. This group would stay about 20 miles from the coast and travel north, just east of the coast road. If all went well, they would push away any attack from the 4th Indian Division and then help take Benghazi, which left the last column an ad hoc group of mobile infantry battalions and artillery from the 21st Panzer and the 90th Light Division, all under the command of Colonel Marks, though Rommel would travel with Marks. Also, a small part of this group would end up traveling up the coast road, specifically the 90th Light Division, which would help Gambera's men take Benghazi. This left the bulk of his force, labeled Marks Group, to head north and come to the coast at Kofia, just north of Benghazi, truly surrounding that port city. When the 15th Panzer Division, which was leading the Africa Corps, reached the screening force of the 200th Guards Brigade, the defenders pulled back, as that was a part of the plan. But the inexperienced first support group units with them spoiled a smooth pullback, as they were new to the area, too many vehicles got stuck in the soft sand and thus had to be abandoned, or they were set upon by Stuka dive bombers. On the other hand, more than a few German tanks and trucks also found themselves stuck in the soft sand. These men had also recently arrived and had not learned the markings of a firmer surface. However, they would have the luxury of retrieving their vehicles later. Underestimating Rommel, as others had, the new commander of the 1st Armored Division, Major General Frank Mercervy, had the 2nd Armed Brigade move forward to help the retreating 200th Guards Brigade. Even better, perhaps the 2nd Armored Brigade would outflank the Germans as they moved against the screening force. Time would tell. With the screening force falling back to Agi Dabia, on the second day, January 22nd, this allowed Mark's group to hit and split the defenders there. By 11 a.m., the town belonged to the Axis. But that's when Rommel was told of the British units, the 2nd Armored Brigade specifically, had moved forward and was now to his southeast. As was much of the 1st Armored Division, Rommel one who never hesitated to call an audible, as they say in American football, on the fly, had the other two columns follow him as he put himself in between the 1st Armored Division and its retreat paths to Imsus. Fortunately for the 1st Armored Division, the newly arrived Axis forces took too much time in forming their line. The defenders swung east and then north on January 23rd to make for Imsus, but they had to fight for much of the way. If it wasn't for the accurate landing of shells by the British artillery units, who knows what would have become of that entire division. Nothing good. When the sun rose on January 24th, the men of the 1st Division and the Guards Brigade found that they had won the race. Just below Imsus were the Germans with their net, 
However, the defenders were already in Imsis, and Rommel, at least for a while, was none the wiser. But the British-led forces had suffered due to Messervy's aggressive decision in the face of Rommel. Yes, the 2nd Armour Brigade had successfully pulled back as well, but they had lost many tanks as the price. Yet the 15th Panzer Division was blood as well, thanks to British artillery. Now it was down to 61 tanks when it had started with 80. Also, the 21st Panzer had gone from 20 to 10 tanks in that same fighting. As usual, Rommel was winning land, but losing men and equipment at an equally impressive rate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. January 24th would be a waste of time and of fuel for the Germans, as Rommel had yet to figure out his trap, thought up in a moment of inspiration, had failed. Thus, reconnaissance units were driving all over the desert, but all in the wrong directions. That's not to say that there was not a battle on the 24th, for on that same day, General Cavallero, the Italian chief of staff, had just flown in from Rome, and he had one job. To tell Rommel to shut this operation, per Kesselring, down. Rommel, however, never shy of a fight or office confrontation, told the Italian that thanks to his recent promotion, he only answered to Hitler. As long as he had men, vehicles, and fuel, he would attack the enemy. Besides, most of the troops under his command at that moment were Germans not Italians, and that, too, gave him the right of independent action. On the other hand, Ritchie had to rush back to the front from Cairo as he was still planning acrobat, his attack on Tripoli. And in that mind frame, he assumed that Rommel was just seeking more room for a future, larger attack, for clearly he could not have enough men or fuel to make a real go of whatever he was up to. Still, it was best to be prudent. Ritchie told Godwin Austin to help hold Benghazi and Imsis, given the trouble Messervy was having, and that if all this fell apart, then they were to retreat back to Makili, which is to the northeast of Benghazi, but still within the Cyrenaican bulge. But they were to hold there. Meanwhile, Ritchie also ordered General Norrie's 30th Corps to move up from the Egyptian border and to get to the west side of Tobruk to help keep it safe. However, January 25th would be a bad and embarrassing day for General Godwin Austin and his 13th Corps. When the 1st Armored Division and parts of the 2nd Armored Division had managed to wiggle out of Rommel's trap by heading east and then north to Imsis, they had left Antilat unguarded, as was the route from Antilat to Imses. Not wasting a gift horse in the mouth, Rommel had the Africa Corps drive northeast towards Imses, its two panzer divisions driving side by side. 
according to Staff Officer Friedrich von Melithen, this is what happened. On the right flank, 21st Panzer met little opposition, but six miles northwest of Sanu, which is just southeast of Antilat, 15th Panzer ran into very superior tank forces. These, however, were overwhelmed by 8th Panzer Regiment, closely supported by anti-tank guns and artillery. It soon became apparent that the British tank units had no battle experience and they were completely demoralized by the onslaught of 15th Panzer. At times, the pursuit attained a speed of 15 miles an hour and the British columns fled madly over the desert in one of the most extraordinary routes of the war. After covering 50 miles in under four hours, 15th Panzer reached Emsis Airfield at 11 a.m., overwhelming numerous supply columns and capturing 12 aircraft ready to take off. But it was the very fuel of that race used up that now stymied Rommel. Yes, another great start to a drive, but now he was low on fuel. There would certainly be no repeat of his dash to McKeeley or to Brooke as he had before, but that did not mean he was completely out of options. As the British probably half expected him to make a go for McKeeley, he would not disappoint them. The Africa Corps would indeed head that way, but it would be a feint. No, his real target now was Benghazi. The 90th Light Division would head north up the coast road, General Gambera's corps would push north from Soluk, and the larger Marx group, with Rommel in tow, would push on from Emsis in rather rough terrain, but it would help add to the surprised looks on the defenders' faces at Benghazi. Marx would be told to head for Kofia, just 10 miles north of Benghazi, and when all was done, the port city and all its supplies would belong to the Axis. To any other leader, this attack was making the best of a worsening situation. Yes, the attack had started well, but as fuel was low, what could be done? Rommel's answer was apparently, brazen it out, scare the enemy into falling back, and capture their fuel supplies with quick, unexpected thrusts. Then, move on. General Ritchie would match Rommel's plans, with his own. Sadly, the command level right under Auchinleck had yet had time to gel properly and get to know each other as to what they would do when pressed. What followed were orders, counter-orders, with the selected units running and driving back and forth, wasting fuel, wasting time, and not engaging the enemy. Rommel had his problems, but they were physical and could be overcome. Auchinleck's growing list of issues was topped by the thought that he may have picked the wrong man to lead 8th Army. But it was too late for any changes now. The defenders would either win with the leadership they had, or they would all soon be running east, to whatever point Rommel could not reach due to fuel. The question was, where was that point on a map, and how close was it to Alexandria? Postscript. Friedrich von Melithen, the person I quoted, wrote a book of his experiences after the war. It's called Panzer Battles, A Study of the Employment of Armor in the Second World War. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So it's been a 
heck of a summer uh, for me. I went to the Grand Canyon, saw some incredible sights, got COVID, was wiped out for three weeks, and then I went to the beach to, to try to recover. Um, but when I was uh, at the beach, um, which was in uh, the Outer Banks, I was able to take the ferry to Ocracoke and see the British Cemetery. Um, of the four sailors who died trying to rescue um, uh, merchant men in the first six months of 1942. So I will put those pictures up on uh, Facebook and Twitter and where else. But uh, after reading about so much about these guys, and they have a ceremony, I think every May of every year, or something someone from the UK comes over, and no- normally a naval officer. Uh, it's very, it's because of the, the town has overgrown so much, the cemetery itself is quite small, but very dignified, very beautiful, very solemn. And I'll put up pictures. I just been, after I've been reading for that, I've been wanting to go for years and I finally got a chance. Um, I just want to welcome aboard some new members and those who have donated. I want to say thank you. Uh, let's see here. Members, uh, Kyle McMahon from Park Hills, Kentucky, uh, Joshua Miller from Sanger, California, Kevin Beers, I think is how you say it, from Atlanta, Georgia. Gary Hoyt from Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, the Written Word Communication Company from Canada, Ontario, Canada. Probably said that wrong. Uh, Linda Martello from Carnelian Bay in California. So thank you for those latest members supporting the show. And as far as those who have made donations, there's Andrew Chen from Brick, New Jersey. Nick from Lincolnshire, who's an ex-British airborne engineer. Thanks, Nick. Uh... You've been with me for a while, so I just wanted to say thank you. Then there's William Yawn, who is a monthly donator. I love him. William, you're my favorite. And lastly, uh, Matthew McDermott. So again, thank you to everybody who's either become a member or donated or wrote nice emails to me. I really do appreciate it. So it shouldn't take us too long to go from January to August of 1942 in North Africa. Then we do pedestal, and then we are going to spend a very very long time on the Eastern Front. So that's the plan. Uh, I appreciate your patience. I know a lot of you miss that, uh, as I, as do I, but I got to keep the overall story going. Anyway, so that's the plan, and I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.